This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. And in today's show, Carol Huawei, it is the international cover story, an investigation, a sting operation. Eric Schatzker in Las Vegas, what more could you ask for? Right, allegations the company's been trying to steal U.S. trade secrets. Also, we have a story on Jay Powell. What will be the Fed chairman's legacy? Right now, he's kind of following the playbook of Janet Yellen, his predecessor, but... He's in a tricky time. And we look at Facebook, so much written and talked about up on Capitol Hill, out in Silicon Valley, about data, what they're doing with it. This is a twist on that story. Plus, we go inside Wisconsin's disastrous deal with Foxconn. It's really a story, Jason, about the promises of creating so much in terms of manufacturing jobs and then the reality of what's happened so far. It's this week's U.S. cover story. But first, Carol, let's start with the magazine's opening remarks. So the remarks in the U.S. edition of the magazine, disruption of another piece, Jason, of American life. And this week, it's about the American labor force getting hurt. A lot of good history here. And candidly, a lot of misconceptions, I think, about where labor was and certainly where it's going. Janet Paskin is here with us. You wrote this piece. Some surprises in here. Is this what you expected to find when you dug into the state of organized labor or labor in general? Well, I think 2018 was so surprising for so many people because all of a sudden you had workers at big companies, big non-union companies, really making their voices heard. And when I set out to write this piece, I wanted to know what was going on. How come if unions were dead, if the American labor movement was dead, why all of a sudden did we have workers speaking up and getting what they were asking for? What did you find out? Well, so there's a lot going on, right? One, the labor market's tight, which I think gives workers a little bit more moxie than they might otherwise have in a bad economic time. People feel a little more secure. Social media has made a huge difference because it means it gives workers a way to find each other, for example, on Facebook or a platform like coworker.org or deep in the threads of Reddit so they can talk to one another. They can share information maybe in a way that they wouldn't have been able to before. And it also allows them to make their case to the public, which companies have become increasingly sensitive to. One of the really interesting things about this is you talk about essentially kind of different generations having different approaches, but ultimately very similar approaches to, I just want a fair workplace. And, you know, increasingly it's younger people who are sort of driving this, people who may have grown up in labor union families or may not have, but they're finding a voice. That's right. And I think um, one of the things that was interesting to me as I talked to a young woman who was part of the union at HuffPost, which, as you know, recently went through a big round of layoffs um, right around the same time that BuzzFeed did as well. And she, this woman is 29, she's an immigrant, um, and she said she grew up with a lot of precariousness in her financial situation. Mm -hmm. And so when HuffPost unionized, that to her made a lot of sense because she wanted some ways in an unstable industry, as we all know, Mm -hmm. uh, to kind of shore up her financial situation. And then we really saw the difference between what happened when HuffPost had those layoffs and then BuzzFeed did recently because BuzzFeed was a non-union workplace. um, And you really saw a lot of those workers, current and now former, Uh, on Twitter advocating that they should be paid for vacation days that they had accrued. One of the things that that you point out near the top of the story is it wasn't expected to be this way, especially given what the Supreme Court has said about labor unions of late. No, yes. And I don't want to overstate what's happening here because... Uh, union activity historically is just way, way, way down. Um, the Supreme Court rulings have been really damaging to the protections of workers who are speaking up. Um, Remind us about those rulings. So there were two. Okay. Um, one made it harder for public sector unions to fund themselves. Um, and the other made it harder for workers to bring class actions. Um, And buried in one of those rulings also uh, suggested that the Supreme Court would be interested potentially in curtailing some other rights of workers to organize. So or in revisiting rights that workers have historically assumed to be theirs. Um, 
So the legal challenges are real. And there's not a, and the formal protections for workers have really been eroded. Companies have a lot of legal power. Right. Um, but sometimes power isn't manifest in a legalistic way. Like I do think about, you know, when we talk about disruption, it just means, you know, we're going through an evolution in terms of how we do do things. We've done this before. But what's interesting is whether it's an Uber worker or Lyft, like the the definition of a worker has also changed in this shared economy, right? Right. And does that complicate things or make it easier? What what does how does that play? Uh it depends. Uh it certainly complicates things from a unionizing perspective. Yeah. Um, and from a collective bargaining perspective perspective. Uh, For example, you know, some people told me that it's very hard to unionize a factory, for example, when you walk in and some of the people are employees, some are contractors, some are vendors, some come from third party, like they just don't even, it's even hard for organizers to know who's who and who works for whom. Um, But in, an, in other ways, it, I think it also makes people, it also puts more pressure on um, consumers and on the public face of the company. So, for example, you have Instacart workers right now, the online delivery mm-hmm. service, and they're waging a very public campaign for what uh, they want is more pay transparency. And they say that some of Instacart's practices aren't fair. They're just taking that to the public. That's Janet Paskin. I really liked this story because we think so much about labor unions and it seems like an antiquated idea, even Mm -hmm. though there's still a lot of organized labor. But organized labor writ large, it's got a whole new complexity to it. And Jason, social media plays a large part in all of this because it really is able to kind of pull together workers to join together for a specific cause. So this week marked the one-year anniversary of Jay Powell as Federal Reserve Chair. His legacy, Jason, so far kind of a shared one with former Fed Chairman, his predecessor, Janet Yellen, and one of kind of a lot of patience. But now it starts to get a bit trickier. Well, it gets a little trickier. And as we know, he's had quite the relationship, at least uh, from a public relations perspective, with the guy who appointed him, President Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. He celebrated his 66th birthday by having dinner with Rich Clarida and President Trump. Here to help us make sense of the Powell legacy one year in, Gina Smilik joins us from Washington. So Jay Powell, Gina, where's he at these days? He is pretty much doing exactly what Janet Yellen did still, I think, in the sense that he is still pursuing a really patient, gradual rate path that is really aimed at sort of, you know, allowing the labor market to make as much progress as possible while still restraining inflation. Um, We heard him signal at the Federal Open Market Committee meeting on January 30th that the Fed might be taking a pause now for the the foreseeable future. So still very much taking this sort of cautious approach. Um, And I think I think it's a real story of continuity so far. Well, and let's remind folks that back in December, if we were having this conversation six weeks ago, it it would be very different because the markets, the president, everybody was a little grumpy with Jay Powell. They were actually impatient with him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think one of the things that I think is so interesting about looking at legacies, Janet Yellen's legacy and Jay Powell's legacy and sort of comparing them is at the end of the day, they followed a really similar what is is called in, in wonk speak a reaction function. You know, they both moved rates up when the economy was looking stronger and inflation looked like it might be headed up and unemployment was headed lower. And then they both took pauses when it seemed like there were sort of risks on the horizon or immediate signs that global growth was showing some cracks, et cetera. And so what what I think is particularly interesting about that is Janet Yellen repeatedly took fire from every side because she was going too slow on rate hikes and there was this real concern that she was going to let inflation get out away from her. Um, I think Jay Powell took criticism for the exact opposite reason because there was this idea that he was going to hike right into a recession, that the Fed was going to be the cause of the next recession. Um, And now that he's paused, it's funny because he's taking a lot of heat for capitulating to the markets. So you kind of, you know, you can't win. And let's get into that a little bit, right? Because here we are just, what, a few months away, four or five months away from being the longest U.S. expansion on record. Uh, And we keep talking, you know, over the last couple of years about a Goldilocks economy, not too hot. We still have job growth. Um, But it's a tricky time for Jay Powell in terms of what he does next. Absolutely. And here is, I think, the moment where Jay Powell's legacy diverges from sort of the path Janet Yellen set out for him. Because 
What Pal is going to have to do together with his colleagues over the next couple of years is create some sort of a playbook for the next recession. You know, we have already seen him sort of decide what's going to go happen with the balance sheet. Um, the Fed decided at their January meeting that they're going to stick with their current operating framework on the balance sheet and have a slightly bigger balance sheet than they had in the past. That was a big decision. We've got even bigger decisions down the road. They're going to have to talk about things like, is the inflation target the right one to be using? What do you do in a world where interest rates are permanent lower, which means you have less ammunition if there's an economic crisis, because the Fed's primary tool to fight crises is really cutting that that Fed funds rate. It's their most potent sort of piece of ammunition in, in their uh, in their toolkit. And so I think there's there are these real questions, and they're not resolved. And Jay Powell is going to be the person in charge of the committee when they have to think through those questions and, and come up with some answers that could potentially be politically difficult. And Gina, help us understand, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, what role do the markets play? I mean, obviously, they want to be the, the Fed, you know, says that they look at all the data, they're data dependent, right. patients, all of that good stuff. And yet, they can't ignore the opinions, shall we say, <laughs> sometimes yeah. stated quite loudly, uh, of the markets and the way markets are moving and their reflection of consumer sentiment and all of those other things. So uh, how does he put all this together? You know, I think there's a real nuance that gets overlooked in this because a lot of times people sort of paint this as this dichotomy where the Fed says they don't look at markets, but clearly they do. And, and there's this idea that there's a pal put. But I think what really happens is the Fed looks at asset price movements in as much as they impact the economic outlook. Mm. So if stocks are selling off and it seems like the kind of thing where it's actively affecting business and consumer sentiment and it might have knock-on effects for the economy, they care about that. If stocks are selling off and credit spreads are tightening or widening and you, what, you, what you see is something that could feed into financial conditions overall and, and really restrain growth in the economy, they care about that. What they don't care about is a temporary blip in the stock market where, you know, stock markets get mad because Jay Powell said he's going to hike rates again and they sell off, but then they recover quickly. I don't think they particularly care about that. What they care about is sustained moves that might bleed into the real economy. And they absolutely look at that. It is clearly something that they're thinking about when they're setting interest rates. And I think they're fairly transparent about that. But I, like I said, I think the nuance gets lost a yeah. little bit. Gina, I definitely do feel like, speaking of nuances, I feel like uh, Jay Powell is kind of learning on the job, right? A year in, uh, certainly if you take a look at the most recent Fed meeting and the press conference and kind of what we've, we what we heard prior to that leading up to it, about kind of being willing to to do what needs to be done to some extent and looking at the financial markets and then meeting with the president. Not unprecedented, but it doesn't happen a lot. So I feel like he's learning how to kind of manage the situation, whether it's the financial markets or whether it's the White House. Yeah, and I'd love to talk about that meeting with the president because I think it's particularly interesting on this point. You know, he, like you said, it's not unprecedented for a Fed chair to meet with the president. They actually sort of routinely do meet with mm -hmm. the presidents who appointed them. But what's different here is that Donald Trump has been extremely critical of Jay Powell in a way that really since the 90s, no president has been of their Fed chair. Since Bill Clinton was in office, basically, um, presidents have really taken, made a point of letting their Fed chair do it as they will and not commenting on it and not pressuring them to go one way or the other on interest rates. Donald Trump has been very open and has tweeted actively and given interviews in which he's criticized Powell's actions and said he shouldn't be hiking rates and, and he's the biggest problem that the economy has right now, things of that nature. And so I think that this meeting took on a real added importance and, and was momentous because of that. And the Fed actually gave us a readout saying, informing us that the meeting happened in the first place, the White House didn't, and then saying that Powell really just went in there and reiterated this idea that the Fed is a politically independent institution, that they will hike rates if the economy warrants it, and that they are tasked with this dual goal from Congress of stabilizing unemployment mm -hmm. at a low level and, and maintaining low and stable inflation, and sort of that that is the thing that they serve above all else, not the White House. That's Bloomberg News Fed reporter Gina Smilek. Smart story about Jay Powell 
Fed chairman and what his legacy will be. So far, he's really followed what uh, Janet Yellen, his predecessor, has done in terms of lots of patience, right, and following what's going on. But he is living in a tricky time in terms of managing the economy and the impact of Fed policy on the economy. Some great historical perspective, as you say, and some nice predictions about what it may take to get that elusive soft landing. So it's been almost two weeks since U.S. federal investigators charged Huawei and its CFO with fraud and conspiracy. Little did we know that there was another undercover investigation going on into Huawei at the same time. This is, without a doubt, the blockbuster story of the week. A months-long investigation involving our own Eric Schatzker not being investigated, but... Watching <laughs> going this undercover whole thing unfold a sting operation. You were there to witness it. Eric is here with us now. How did this come about? Take us back to the beginning. Well, I found out through means that I'm not willing to disclose that um, there was an investigation underway involving a very small startup based outside Chicago that's in the advanced materials industry. They're trying to develop a diamond coating that would go on top of your smartphone display, making it harder, more scratch-resistant, and ideally of great appeal to the likes of Apple, Samsung, LG, HTC, the world's major smartphone manufacturers, including Huawei. And the reason this investigation was happening was because of their interactions with Huawei. They had been sending samples of their diamond glass product, to a bunch of different smartphone makers. Which is typically what a supplier will do, right? Standard in the industry. You develop a new technology, you go through multiple iterations. Once you figure that you have something that you're ready to show prospective Mm -hmm. customers, you send it to them, they perform some tests. And there are rules, correct, around sharing that sample? Yes, and in this case, the rules were you can have the sample for 60 days, and the tests that you perform have to be non-destructive. And so this company, Akon Semiconductor, sent two rounds of samples to Huawei, and we can assume that they did the same thing with other companies, which they're not willing to name, and that's understandable because they don't have a customer yet. They're still in the pre-customer, pre-revenue stage of existence. And after the second round of samples went out, the 60 days passed, and the sample didn't come back. And so they demanded that the sample be returned immediately, as you would. And the first thing they got back from Huawei was an email with a picture in it. And the picture was under magnification of the sample, and it had a big scratch through it. Now, we talk about this diamond glass as being scratch-resistant or unbreakable. It is up to a certain point. It's only very, very, very thin. It's not like it's a chunk of diamond, which would be a lot harder to scratch. And it also wasn't in its final form. This was still a prototype. So they saw the scratch and they thought, my goodness, you know, they've violated the terms of our agreement. They've damaged the sample. And so again, you know, they persisted in asking for the sample back. It was finally returned last August, August the 2nd of 2018. And when the chief operating officer at this little startup outside Chicago opened up the cardboard box, threw away the airbags, opened up the plastic case, he realized the sample wasn't just damaged. The sample had been broken into two pieces and three shards of this diamond glass were missing. And it was at that point that he and the CEO and founder of this company, Adam Kahn, realized that something very bad was going on. This is not what companies do when they're engaging in good faith business, Mm -hmm. but that they could surmise and they feared the worst. Right. And the worst being that their intellectual property was being stolen. Well, that's among the range of worst possible outcomes. Yes, absolutely. That Huawei had damaged the sample in an effort to reverse engineer the proprietary processes and figure out how to put the diamond coating on the glass themselves and get to market that much faster. But also, what else might they want diamond film technology for? Akon Semiconductor didn't get into this business strictly to manufacture diamond glass. They got into the diamond film or diamond coatings business because, in theory, there are a lot of potential applications. Including defense To electronics and also (laughs) to defense. If you want to get into the business of laser weaponry, either 
on an offensive basis or a defensive basis, you need diamond. And so they worried that maybe it wasn't just Huawei trying to get a jump on the smartphone industry. It was the Chinese military trying to get a jump on the U.S. Army. That's Bloomberg Editor-at-Large, Eric Schatzker. Man, I love this story, Carol. He went undercover. I love this story. And what's interesting is, especially as we have a lot of tensions between the United States and China over trade, and we are looking into a lot of different Chinese tech companies, this kind of gives you some more insight about intellectual property and why the U.S. is so concerned about some of those China players. And how deep into the startup economy uh, the Chinese and Huawei, mm-hmm. in this case specifically, are going. And Jason, that was just scratching the surface with Eric. There's so much more detail to get into the battle between the U.S. and the Chinese tech giant. Well, and exactly, and what it was like to be there. It's a different, Mm -hmm. very different uh, kind of story. And so for the full conversation with Eric, be sure to download our Business Week Extra podcast. Get that wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, or of course at Bloomberg.com. So we have a story this week. It's actually, Jason, the U.S. cover. It's all about Foxconn. And remember, President Trump promised to bring a lot of manufacturing jobs back to America. Case in point, a Foxconn plant in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin. It promised about 13,000 good-paying factory jobs, but it's not exactly what the U.S. got. This is such a deeply reported, multifaceted Mm -hmm. story. Austin Carr, here in New York with us, you saw a lot when you dug into this story and everything, as Carol said, didn't work out exactly the way we thought it might. Take us to Wisconsin. What's going on? Uh, So, yeah, there was this big deal, $4.5 billion promised uh, in subsidies to this Taiwanese manufacturer, Foxconn. Uh, They were supposed to create 13,000 factory jobs. It was supposed to be transformative for the state. Uh, But at least so far, based on our reporting, and this has been months of reporting, dozens of sources involved, uh, things are not going uh, so well where the facility is based in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin. So take us back to sort of the scene where, you know, you have President Trump. I mean, you have just a a plethora of big names, big political names, President Trump, his chief of staff, who is from Wisconsin, Paul Ryan, former Speaker of the House, also from Wisconsin. You have the governor, Scott Walker. You have Wilbur Ross. You have this whole panoply of people (laughs) who are there. And this seemed to embody a lot of the promises of the Trump campaign. Yeah, Trump on stage at this groundbreaking ceremony said this is going to return uh, America's industrial might. Uh, He said that this is central to his trade deal, uh, trade war with China, because it was going to bring those factory jobs back, those blue collar jobs back to places like Wisconsin, the Rust Belt, sort of revive what we've lost in the past couple of decades to uh, to Mexico and and places like Asia. Uh, But for a lot of the sources that we have that were actually watching in that audience that day, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Uh, Trump was talking about how everything was going to be made in the USA, but it turns out the TV LCDs that were actually ma- uh, made there or manufactured, they were only assembled. Uh, a lot of the parts were actually imported from Mexico, and indeed the TV displays for a lot of them still said made in Mexico. Um, they, he talked about how there were going to be good paying jobs uh, coming to Wisconsin. It turns out a lot of the production workers were just temps hourly or interns. They were getting paid $14 an hour. They weren't getting benefits. Uh, and, and and they just felt like a lot of these jobs were pretty underwhelming. Uh, that didn't live up to any of the pr- promises that the, the president seemed to be making. You know, when I started reading the story, I turned to Jason. I said, remember like a year ago, we kept having, you know, the president at different companies around the country saying, I'm bringing back manufacturing jobs. And this is what happened. It was like June of last year. So almost a year ago. What's interesting is tell us, you know, it was just shortly after that, that I think the interns or internships, people were realizing, wait, I'm not going to have my job anymore. Like things started to come undone. Correct. Just a couple weeks after uh, the president visited Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin, for this groundbreaking ceremony in June 2018, uh, a Foxconn manager actually called a group of about 15 interns uh, into a room and told them that they're actually not going to hire those people full time because there wasn't a work uh, enough work for them to be doing to be hired full time. And in fact, uh, two of those sources in that room recall the manager saying that there was external uh, pressures changing uh, the Wisconsin project, which seemed pretty cryptic, uh, but for shadowing what we've seen more recently. So 30 or 40 workers that are maybe let go out of 13,000 wouldn't bother me. Were there ever 13,000 jobs created? No, no, no. Th- those are longer term projections. Um, you know, the, the, the company is committed to create up to 13,000 as early as 2022, but it's staggered hiring commitments and they've already missed their first year hiring. They were supposed to have about 1,040 workers. Uh, that was their maximum target this year. Uh, and they missed it by about 82%. Uh, so that, that's pretty drastic. So they missed it by 82%. So they 
missed there was a ma- that was the whole. there was a it was their minimum target was thirty percent miss right. their max was eighty two percent so on either end pretty pretty stunning misses and that means they don't get the subsidies either right that's it's correct all- so so the the one upside to the deal with Wisconsin is that uh, they are they only get the subsidies on the uh, uh, assumption that they hire those people and they also invest a certain amount of capital expenditures, um, which is complicated in itself because the deal isn't just uh, what the state gives in state subsidies. There's already countless man hours that have gone into this project. The local counties have invested hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. The state is committed hundreds of millions of dollars in infrastructure improvements. So there's a lot of ways that this deal has already proved costly for Wisconsin taxpayers. And one of the really interesting parts of this story, it feels like, is Foxconn itself and Foxconn in light of, as you alluded to earlier, a complicated relationship between the U.S. and China as it relates to intellectual property, as it relates to trade. Remind us what Foxconn is, because there are some characters on that side of the ledger as well. Sure. Yeah. So Foxconn is one of the, is the world's largest contract electronics manufacturer. They make pretty much every iPhone part, uh, any if you have a laptop, if you have an Amazon Echo and Nintendo, they make all of that equipment. Uh, they're, they're sort of synonymous with overseas and outsourced manufacturing for U.S. tech companies. They also employ about, I think, 1.4 million people. It is wow. a massive Jeez. company. And most of their uh, factory operations are based in mainland China, where they're sort of also infamous for low labor standards. I, I think you probably remember a few years ago when they had to erect suicide nets mm-hmm. outside of their factories due to uh, labor violations and, and ba- poor conditions there uh, and low pay for those workers. And as you say, probably the way that people have heard this name before is vis-a-vis Apple. Correct. The, the, the history right. goes right. back very far, and we've heard time and again, and even of late, and we'll get to it in, probably in a minute, about how beholden they are to the supply chain of big companies like Apple, as you that, say. That's correct. I mean, part of the big challenge for Foxconn recently is that they're really tied to not just Apple, but specifically the iPhone. Right. As, as demand has softened for that globally, that's really been a, a strain for the company's balance sheet, and they've been trying to diversify so they're not committed so much to Apple's for, for about 50 percent of their revenue. And so essentially their business changed over the course of this agreement. And so they made mm-hmm. some pretty dramatic adjustments, mm-hmm. shall we say, to to their plans there in Wisconsin. Correct. Yeah. So as these pressures have ramped up, it, it's pretty much coincides with a lot of the things that were going poorly internally at the operation. Uh, our sources told us that around you know fall 2018, that uh, hiring goals started to drop pretty significantly, um, that uh, uh, managers had talked about significant budget cuts coming. Uh, and so those were some of the early warning signs that said, you know what, that maybe this is not the best place to be pouring our dollars right now. OK, so this is what I think is, is crucial about this story. The mission was, right, I think an LCD factory, right, mm-hmm. to be and create thousands and thousands of manufacturing jobs. So the mission changed and they pulled off of that. And then they started talking about an R&D facility, which is obviously not a lot of manufacturing jobs. So tell us a little bit about the transition yeah. here and how that mission changed. Th- th- that's a very kind uh, description. <laughs> Yeah, Carol, it was a lot. It was a lot more incoherent than that, frankly. Um, the the deal, yes, was for an LCD factory and also this huge tech-like campus that they called Wisconsin Valley. Right. Um, the the sort of manufacturing slash R and D hub. Supposed to be like a Silicon grow. Valley. Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Right. Um, the the issue is as the deal after it was signed, they actually scaled back on what they were committing to in terms of the factory size. They were going to make a much smaller LCD TV factory, and then later on that they said, "Oh wait, we're actually not going to build that factory." Then the next day they said, "We are, we may build that factory." And then President Trump actually called the Foxconn chairman Terry Go and. They had some words, and now suddenly they're going to build the factory again. Um, in addition to that, they've also, yeah, we've talked about this R&D facilities around right. the state in Eau Claire and Green Bay. But it's really stunning. A lot of the sources I co- talked to could not really cogently describe what they're doing. Uh, one source actually described them just pretty derisively as glorified think tanks. And talk, because I think what was great about your story, and I felt like there was so much from people, you couldn't, they wouldn't talk you know, give you their names and stuff, certainly for the story, but people inside the company and what you heard from them. Yeah. So uh, we did talk to a lot of the the workers there. Uh, and, and that's one, one thing I should say is this completely forgotten in this whole story. It's a very it's caught up in politics, the trade war. Yeah. And this whole thing is supposed to be about Foxconn workers and blue collar workers in Wisconsin. And they've been completely forgotten in this equation. So one thing I love about the story is that we do talk to them and they've been telling us the pay is low. They felt expendable. The company had been making an aggressive push toward more automation, meaning a lot of their roles might be expendable. I mean, this is one of the world's larger, largest makers of laptops and PCs and 
and, and smartphones. And yet a lot of the technical workers still were required to bring their personal computers and phones to work. Right. Uh, I don't know about you. I mean, we have computers at work that, right. that shouldn't be that stunning for a tech company to have. Right. Um, in addition to that, uh, yeah, I, I think I mentioned that the pay was low, but they, they also lured in temp workers, hourly temp workers on this vague promise that they might get a full-time job down the road. And a lot of them just say that that never really seemed to materialize or they always had some excuse or another uh, for why they didn't uh, hire them full-time for that position. And so what does Foxconn say? What do, what do they say is going on? What do they say happens next? Foxconn, um, I will say it, their, their responses were rather enigmatic to us. We spent a lot of time doing fact-checking. They didn't participate in the story uh, despite months and months of requests for interview executives. They did say that their uh, facility in Wisconsin, their early factory there, is experimental by nature and thus uh, changes are expected. They're just going through testing to ramp up production overall. They say uh, the fact that their parts are from Mexico are not indicative of longer term production. Um, and uh, they say that they're still committed to higher higher wages. Uh, but I, I would say overall that the, they didn't respond to a lot of the queries that we sent them uh, and they declined to comment on many others. That's reporter Austin Carr. Another great deep dive by Austin. And what's interesting about this story, and I think it's timely, Jason, coming in the week where we had the State of the Union by President Trump. We're looking at kind of the initiatives, the promises he made when he was out there on the campaign trail about bringing a lot of manufacturing jobs. It's really a case of promises versus reality because what happened with Foxconn, it hasn't created all the jobs it promised it would. Well, and what's important about this story, Carol, is I think you deal with the political, you deal with sort of the CEO, the boardroom level, Mm -hmm. but also get right down to business and right down to the ground. This is affecting a lot of workers. Carol, we talk a lot about Facebook and the other tech companies when it comes to privacy. It seems to have been issue number one for the fangs over the last year and really at the heart of a big debate in Silicon Valley about our relationship with these companies. And what's great about Sarah Fryer's story this week in the technology section of the magazine, it's about another privacy debate to be concerned about when it comes to Facebook. Let's bring Sarah in. So Sarah, what's going on? So for the past year, we've heard this over and over, this argument from Facebook that they do not sell your data. And pundits come out and they say, well, technically you do, right? It's just a semantic argument. You collect this data, but then you rent it to advertisers. You rent the targeting of us to advertisers. And then we get into this debate about whether Facebook should be doing that or not. That is what I'm arguing is not the real privacy debate when it comes to Facebook. The real debate is how much data are we giving them and how transparent are they being about the collection of that data? And I think some instances over the past year have shown that that is probably a more important discussion to be having because we really don't know and they really don't talk about the extent to which that occurs. This has really come to the fore even more recently as they've started to talk about maybe consolidating some of the back end, at least, of their most popular uh, applications that they're really counting on uh, to grow the business. Help us understand how that comes into play. You have Facebook, which knows who everyone is, right? If you log in for Facebook, you have to use your real name. If you use WhatsApp or Instagram, you don't have to use your real name. So people have been able to have anonymous or semi-anonymous identities on those platforms. And what Facebook says it's doing is combining the back end of those platforms so that you can send messages to yourself on a different service. This is not really something that people have been asking for, but it's something that Facebook argues that we will want, is the ability to send a message through WhatsApp if you're using Facebook Marketplace, or send a WhatsApp message through Instagram and vice versa. And What that is going to do for Facebook in what they have not discussed is it will allow them to know who you are on those platforms. It'll connect that identity to the data that Facebook has about your real identity. So it's just another way that Facebook has been connecting the dots and get this, their argument about that combination and why that's so important is encryption so that you can send end-to-end encrypted messages. They're saying that they're doing it in the name of privacy, but they're actually going to get more data out of it. So I think we're going to see that over and over again. Facebook saying they're doing something for privacy that ends up giving them a lot more information. And in the meantime, folks, lawmakers in Congress are saying, wait, wait, what are we supposed to be you know, concerned about when it comes to Facebook? I love this line in your story. The company has capitalized on the way Congress misunderstood its business. Explain that. So when Zuckerberg was testifying on Capitol Hill in April, 
the senators have this sort of back and forth with him about do you sell users data? And Zuckerberg says, no, we don't. And that has allowed the company to go out in all of its marketing materials and all of its public speeches for the last few months and say, you know, there are some really fundamental misunderstandings about how our business works. It's not as scary as you think. We don't sell your data. There's no reason we would want to be a data broker. And that's true. There is no reason that Facebook would want to sell your data because your data is what makes Facebook service so valuable to advertisers, they're just going to use this argument to put up more walls around it to prevent other people from getting access to that kind of information and cementing their place of power. Well, and Sarah, one of the sort of unintended consequences, and I feel like that is the <laughs> that that comes up over and over again in this entire argument, and as we try and figure out how these companies are operating, and I noticed this. At, come out over the past week or so, this idea of them changing a setting, changing some access so that researchers and journalists and others can't get the same access to data that they could before. ProPublica came out publicly and, and talked about this. Help us understand that element. So go back to what I said about Facebook putting up walls around its data. They're going to be able to say Based on public demand, we know that people care about us not sharing their data with others. So we're just going to make it impossible. So you have these entities like researchers, like ProPublica, that are trying to add some transparency to this vast network of information, uh, basically a, a digital representation of how we live our lives and talk to each other. And they're trying to help us understand what's happening there. But the only information we can get now about how Facebook works is through Facebook itself and through the research that they have they have decided to, to fund and control or uh, direct in some way. That's Sarah Fryer. And I think this is um, a smart story in that we've talked about Facebook a lot, privacy concerns, use about external data by a lot of its advertisers. This is a story that looks into data that Facebook is collecting and what it's doing with it. It really is an important story. Sarah Fryer really yeah. covers this company from all the angles and is a very smart take. So Jason, a story this week in the finance section, it's about a hedge fund. And I feel like this is kind of a theme that we've had over the past year or so that a one-storied hedge fund all of a sudden kind of runs into trouble. Maybe it's the bigger macro environment. Sometimes it's a star investment manager who leaves. It is microcosmic. Is that a word? I think so. Uh, Katya Porsikansky is here with us. She got the scoop, really the inside look. And as Carol says, Katya, this is a bigger story than just this one hedge fund. Tell us about Fertree. So Fertree um, is a is a 25-year-old fund. It's one of the oldest hedge funds still surviving and a very well-respected firm. And uh, spent many, many months working on this story. And you can read the whole thing online. Um, at, and we kind of use it as a vessel to tell us a, a story about the, the hedge fund industry at large, which is very unlike... Um, private equity firms and very unlike mutual fund firms um, because they are really entrepreneurial ventures. It's really important to remember that the hedge fund industry, a lot of these, even the ones that manage billions and billions of dollars, um, you know, they barely have an HR department. They are a few scrappy guys with a terminal <laughs> and um, they don't really have a plan in place to last past um, the first generation. Very few actually um, have figured out a, a, a way to survive beyond their founder. We'll dig deeper and go into the specifics of what happened at Fertree Capital Management, because this really does tell the story so well. Absolutely. So Fertree was founded by uh, a man named Jeff Tannenbaum, who was a former private equity analyst, and he founded it in 1994, but it didn't really start taking off until he tapped one of his former classmates from Tulane University, this guy named Andrew Fredman, um, to come and really build it. And so Fredman comes along in 2000 and takes this firm from being $300 million to $13 billion. His track record is- That's huge. It's, it's really big. And, <laughs> yeah. and he he's actually a, a very good investor. Um, just we were comping his returns versus the S&P or other um, rel other relative value firms or hedge funds at large. And, and he really did beat them. He annualized 7.5% over his tenure. And that's including some bad months when he wasn't even there. So, you know, we just tried to take the full picture. Um, and he builds it, but he's not really the person 
personality that you see um, it, often in investing. He stays in Miami, Florida, um, even though the headquarters are here in New York. And he's kind of got this like child of the 60s personality. Um, he's obsessed with uh, every trade that's put on. He's on around the clock. He's dialing up his analysts and he's involved in this, in the culture in, in a very important way. So even though Jeff Tannenbaum was the founder, Andrew Fredman is really the heart and soul of this firm. And unlike Bill Gross, who retired at 74, well past his prime, Fredman steps away at his prime, which is just, you never see this. In his 50s, early 50s? 53 years old. I mean, he has this lottery ticket and he just throws it away. I mean, not necessarily still got very rich over the course of his life. He was just kind of done. He was done. He was burned out and he was just over it. And um, we really rarely see that. And it shocked everyone. And even though the fir tree had a, a, a succession plan in place, like they had um, a top lieutenant of his who's the natural successor, he took over. Um, and they had this whole group of managing directors that would support this uh, the successor. Um, things still fell apart. And that's what's uh, that's what's so interesting about this story, because you can have a plan but to execute and to see how it actually comes together when 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 you have to when that when the time comes that's what's really interesting about the hedge fund industry. and that's the underlying theme of your story when you talk about him being the heart and soul the kind of core of the firm and so when that goes away it like all comes undone yeah you don't really appreciate how someone is the glue until they're yeah. gone and it's whether you know and you can try really hard to to stick to your plan but it At the end of the day, the firm has lost $8 billion since he left. The performance has not gone well. Um, It's just been pretty bad year after bad year. Um, Last year, they lost 8.2%. And they're mired in a lot of bad trades that came about um, starting when he stepped back. And and one of the things that, that you rightly point out, and, you know, you mentioned private equity funds earlier, that money is locked up for longer amounts of time. With a hedge fund, it starts to spiral downward, right? You know, performance gets to a certain point, a lower point. People start to pull their money out. Other people start to pull their money. And it it spirals downward very, very quickly. And actually, Fertree has their capital locked up for two years because they do take some positions that are more private equity style. But that's how you know, right, like investors' patience is wearing thin. Um, Now it's been basically five years of mediocre performance. Um, They, and and even though the capital is locked up, you can see that redemptions are happening. I mean, Um, money talks, right? If money is coming out, obviously investors aren't pleased. Yes. And I think, I love this line in your story that you talk about a generational shift has begun and you think about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater and some other really storied firms that are so identified with the core in terms of the investment philosophy. What happens after these folks go away. It'll be really interesting to see how a lot of those firms deal with it. We've been covering it and writing about how they've been putting the pieces in place. But, um, you know, like Ray Dalio is trying to put his brain into a machine so that he can live on even after he's gone. Um, A lot of other firms have have put kind of a a co-CIO like Paul Singer has um, has a co-CIO. Dan Pollack has been there for many years. And basically the idea is this guy's just going to take over when Paul steps away. Paul ever steps away. I mean, this guy, right. I don't see this guy leaving. It's no different, but, though. Yeah. Like, I think of the private equity world that you so closely cover, Jason, that you've got somebody who's so identified, right, with right. a firm. And then what do they do for a succession plan? Right. Well, and we've seen in the hedge fund world, especially, you know, a lot of people, very well-known managers, whether it's Lee Cooperman or others, sort of say, I'm done. You know, Soros obviously very notably did it. You know, they convert to a family office, you know, which is kind of the I'm going to go spend more time with my family of hedge (laughs) funds. Right. And it still requires a lot of layoffs. And one of the issues you're like within private equity firms, a lot of them are are publicly traded. Right. So they have a board and the whole thing is well orchestrated years in advance. These guys, they're not publicly traded and they don't really care. I mean, a lot of them don't really care what happens to their fund after they they retired. It's their fund. Um, that they, the layoffs associated with it. Like Lee Cooperman was crying when when we interviewed him about him him turning into a family office. He said he's going to have to lay off the majority of his staff. I mean, even if you're still existing in some way or another, you yeah. don't need most of the people. 
That's Katya Porsikansky, Carol, and man, she's such a great oh, reporter yes. and told that story very well. She really did. And, you know, the bigger, broader story here is about these storied, respected hedge funds that have had great track records. But what happens when kind of the star investor at the firm leaves? It's all about succession. Well, and timely this week, especially with the departure of Bill Gross yes. uh, from Janice Henderson, he, of course, really made PIMCO into what it is today, a different segment of the asset management business. But those stars even more important, potentially, in hedge funds. So, Jason, remember it was not so long ago, and many were talking about the demise of the recording industry music labels, kind of even saying maybe it's a dying industry. Well, here we are in 2019, and music labels, they're doing just fine. Absolutely. It is one of the most surprising things yeah. that's happened in that corner of the entertainment world. Lucas Shaw looks after the music industry. He joins us from Hong Kong with this story. So, Lucas, what happened? Streaming really happened. You know, as recently as 2014, sales in the music industry had bottomed out just north of $14 billion. But that was around the same time that Spotify and then later Apple Music started to pick up steam. Spotify, uh, you know, just this past week reported that it now has 96 million people paying for its on-demand service. And as a result, industry sales have grown four years in a row. They are now north of $17 billion and likely hit 18 or $19 billion in 2018. Interesting. So streaming. But what's fascinating about your story is the concerns about the music industry a decade ago were because of online, because of streaming. Yet because of streaming and online is kind of saving the music industry as well. Yeah, I mean, the the initial decline in music was because you just had first you had piracy and then you had iTunes and iTunes made it so that somebody could go from spending $20 on a CD to instead spending $1 on a song. Streaming sort of flipped the equation there where all of a sudden people could pay $10 a month or in some cases a little bit less. And that is actually a, a, you know, a better deal for record labels than they were getting in some cases in the CD era. You know, there's still a lot of tension between these big internet companies and the music companies. It's, it's ever present. Um, and record companies now like to claim that they are responsible for the success of Spotify, which I find to be a little bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, but there is no question that these streaming services are turning on all over the world. And you see what the, the opportunity that a lot of these companies see and what Universal is probably going to try to, or Vivendi is going to try to tell investors, is what you're seeing in the U.S. and Europe is going to start playing out all over the world, you're going to see streaming services develop in India and China and maybe even places like Indonesia and Saudi Arabia. And if that happens, there's a chance that the music business can get back to the size it was before. Because it's important to note that even though it's growing again, and that's what has people all excited about buying a stake in Universal Music, that the music business is still a fraction of the size that it was in 1999 and 2000, especially when you start to account for inflation. So... I want to talk about that potential sale. But before we get there, remind us of the economics of streaming, how everybody gets paid along the way, because it's, it's a little different, obviously, than just going out and buying a record or a CD, right? Yeah, so it, and it also varies based on the service and based on country, but for the biggest services, for the Spotify's and Apple Music's of the world, what happens is Spotify collects their price from you every month. They're $9.99, or in the real price is more like 6 or $7 a month. And then they split that amongst the different rights holders based on their share of streaming. So if you're Universal Music, if you're Warner Music, you're getting a cut of that, of every customer, based on how much your artists get streamed. And so you're incentivized then to do a really, really good job signing and developing new artists and holding on to old catalog. And this has really boosted the value of all music copyright because the more you have, the more you get paid. Well, and what's interesting and what I love about your story is you really kind of dig into the value of music content uh, that is growing and it and it kind of plays into this whole idea of what is it, Vivendi thinking about a partial sale of Universal. It's because we see kind of the industry growing again. Yeah, you know, there, music always is able to trade because it's a sexy industry. You know, even in 2011, when the industry was near its bottom, Warner Music Group got sold for $3.3 billion to uh, Ukrainian-American billionaire Len Blavatnik, in large part because he probably just wanted to be close to the music business. He likes being at the parties. He likes being with the different celebrities. But now it's seen by, by investors and by financial institutions as a real potential for opportunity because you saw with Sony ATV, which was a music publishing asset that a consortium of investors bought at a pretty low kind of low value in 2011 2012 traded it just six years later and got a killing of a return 
And so where do artists fit into all this? Because I think back over the past couple of years, Taylor Swift has obviously been very vocal mm-hmm. in terms of where her music goes, who's paying for it, where it's not going. And you've had other artists dealing directly with some of the streaming services. How does it play out from the actual creator's perspective? For most artists, their money is still in touring. They view stream, I mean, a a really big act, a Taylor Swift, a Drake, will make a few million dollars from streaming on their album. But even then, it's almost like marketing for their tour because Taylor Swift can clear millions of dollars a night in a show. Same with Drake, same with a lot of the biggest acts in the world. Now, they do get paid for, they do get paid for every stream. They get a share of whatever their record contract is and a big star can negotiate something that's, that's advantageous to them. But for the most part, they still see streaming as just a way to get their music out there. That's Lucas Shaw. Lucas, we caught up with him in Hong Kong. A great conversation. But taking a look at the music recording industry, go back about a decade and we said, all the streaming services, Jason, we're going to kill the music record labels. Well, and first it was piracy. Yeah. Then it was Apple Music. Then it was Spotify. And all of a sudden, kind of enemies become at least frenemies. And that's really changed the valuations around these music labels. It's time to take a look at Business Week's Pursuits with editor Chris Rouser. So, Chris, tell us about the opener to Pursuits this week, because it sounds like I could have my body wrapped in Hermes leather. Yes. (laughs) Maybe. So something that people don't know uh, necessarily about Hermes and some of the other ultra luxury brands like Louis Vuitton or um, Bentley is that there's a very top tier of customer service where they're actually customized pretty much anything that you want for them. So if you go to Hermes and you say, you know, I just bought a private jet and I would like all of the leather inside of it to be Hermes. We can do it. They'll do that. (laughs) (laughs) They'll make you an Hermes skateboard. They'll make you Hermes boxing gloves, ping pong paddles, an Hermes foosball table, whatever you want if you have the money. Have they always been doing this? No, so they they have always had a little bit of uh, like customization service. So like originally Hermes was making equestrian stuff and they were making it to order. So it's always been a part of the business. But the Sur, the Sur Majeure Atelier outside of Paris, which is what we're writing about, right. uh, has only been around for a couple of decades. Actually. And we went there, right? Yes. So we were one of the few people allowed inside. And it's a very simple sort of setup. There's about 12 craftsmen in there, a mix of men and women, and they can do anything you want. They can make uh, a fly rod for you. They can build you a canoe. They can do the inside of your Bugatti. Sharon. They will teach themselves how to do anything and do it. These are really craftsmen. And as you said, I think, aren't there identities kind of kept hidden because they don't want to lose these people? Yeah. So we were we were like, oh, well, let's shoot the inside of this right. atelier. Like, it sounds so great. Uh, and they were like, you can take pictures, but you can't, you know, you, you can't, we don't reveal the identities of these people because they're so sought after, actually, which is very interesting. Yeah, I agree. So d- tell me, I mean, you said that they can do almost anything, but do they say no to some things? Uh, yeah, they'll say so. They'll say no to anything that's too uh, blinged out or too branded. So they don't. This is about having great craftsmanship. It isn't right. about having something that says Hermes, Hermes, Hermes all over it. So um, famously, someone in New York City has an Hermes closet where like all the walls in their like walk-in closet are Hermes leather, and they wouldn't let you do that in like an Hermes orange or with the H all over it, right? Uh, because they don't. You know, that's not what they're going for. They're not trying to get the message out with this. This is just about craftsmanship. Well, why are they doing this? Because does it bring a lot of money? I'm just curious in terms of the bottom line. Does it contribute a lot or what is this about? It doesn't. You know, I mean, a lot of times brands will have this kind of high level customization because it's sort of like a loss leader. It's, you know, they'll do a halo car, a car company will do a halo car that like only one or two people can get. And then, but everybody else knows about it. And it sort of adds to the mystery of the brand. This is really about servicing the top end clientele and then actually inspiring Hermes. So somebody came in once and said, you know, my apple, my wife takes an apple to work with with her every day to eat. I want to make an Hermes apple carrier for her. So they made a... All right, everybody, don't hate us. We're just telling you about the story. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't, yeah. <laughs> um, and so they made this beautiful little apple case and it just it sort of inspired them to the, a different forms right. for purses, right? And so they, they kind of use this as an innovation lab as well. 
I love this. So talk to us because I think everybody who's listening is saying, okay, so you bring something in, how quickly does it get done? What's yeah. kind of the process and what does it cost? So, and we can go through some of the, the items. Yeah. So, you know, you go in and they'll spec it out for you. Uh, and within a month, they'll give you sort of a plan. And then within another month, they'll actually give you sort of a prototype of what you, uh, of what you want. So right. let's say you ordered a bag, they'll give you like a, they'll sort of show you a canvas version of the bag. Um, and then they'll give you a price and they do not negotiate. There is no wiggle room. The price is the price. This is it. This is it. Yeah. And, um, you know, so for example, the boxing gloves, they had some boxing gloves there when we went to check it out. Right. Those were $44,000. And they had a skateboard that was $3,000. They had a picnic basket that was $14,000. And, you know, these, you know, in the range of picnic baskets, $14,000 is a lot. Right, right. In the range of Hermes carrying things that carry things that are sold for Hermes, $14,000 actually is kind of in the range of what things cost. I'm just curious because I think about like everybody wants the Hermes Birkin bag or the, you know, one of those bags and stuff. I mean, can you ask them to make your own bag or no? They'll do some personalization on a bag, like okay. they'll do a kind of special treatment, but you can't, the whole, one of the whole things about Birkin bags is that they release limited quantities, yeah. say like the purple crop. There's the list. Yeah, the list. And <laughs> right. And there's the list of people who want to get it. And um, so they don't, they won't, if you go in there and you say, Hey, I want like a neon green crocodile Birkin bag. They won't make that for you because that's a different part of the business. Right. That, I want that, that or I want a house. Right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, me too. Right now payment. Um, yeah. So they, they don't mess with the bag business. Okay. That's a whole other thing. Thing. I am curious though about the private jet. Do they, like what does something like that cost? If so you're doing like the interior of a private jet, they would not tell us. Okay. <laughs> that you know the sky can kind of be the limit with that, yeah. um, and you know they sort of view it as it actually might in the in the scale of the cost of a jet, which can be forty million dollars. Right. You know the kidding it out in Hermes actually isn't that much money contextually. Uh, and it actually can add a lot of money to the resale value of the jet. Right. So I'm not saying it's a great investment, but it's maybe less of an insane thing to do than you think. All right. So those people who are using Hermes leather to outfit their Learjet um, probably might maybe need a little bit of help about what to do with their bonus money. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys so provided every, that this week. Every year in Pursuits, we do um, a section that gives you advice on how to spend your bonus. And, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, give you advice on how to spend small amounts of money or large amounts of money. Um, a lot of times we focus on philanthropy. And right. this year, since there's so much economic uncertainty going into the year, uh, we were like, what would we asked a bunch of different people, what would you spend your bonus on if you knew you were never going to get another bonus? You know, what would you invest in? That right. was self-indulgent. You know, this is stuff. These are like self-care gifts. This isn't philanthropic stuff. Right. You know, what would you get that you would, if you had no money tomorrow, still look back on and be like, I'm glad I got that. And we got some really interesting responses that tell, I love. Tell us about some of them. Yeah. So I it's a range. It's a really, we got a real range. Um, I talked to the actor, Michael B. Jordan, and uh, sort of surprised him with the question. And he was like, oh, a PJ. I get a private jet. Because then you <laughs> because then, you know, you could use that. It's like it's yeah, I know. Right. Exactly. Um, which I thought was funny. We asked uh, Marie Kondo, the yeah. tidying expert, yes. what she would get. And she was like, well, you know, I don't have a lot of needs for stuff beyond what's in, you know, what's in my home. So I would really... I would uh, ask, I would get water, rice, and food, which was so her. Okay, it is so her. <laughs> yeah. Um, we asked Brian Kelly, the points guy, and he said he would do uh, a trip to Tahiti. Um, Roy Niederhofer said he would buy like an original Bach manuscript. Uh, we got, you got chefs saying they'd start food businesses. Who wanted the Egyptian mummy mask that was about 27,000? Uh, these are, that actually is from James Tarmy, our arts writer. That was, of his, that was one of his recommendations on. <laughs> what to get. We, someone recommended uh, a year's worth of Botox. Uh, um, someone from Barney's recommended a pair of Prada slingback pumps, which you never regret getting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, N- Natasha Leone, the actress, said she'd get a like a Gucci dog collar for her dog. <laughs> the final splurge. Okay, yeah. so there's lots of good ideas in there. Let's also talk about The Critic this week, because this is about an art movie. Yeah, so there's a, a movie that just came out this past weekend. Uh, it's in limited theaters, and it's streaming on Netflix. It's called Velvet Buzzsaw. And great title. It, yeah, great title. It's gotten a lot of buzz uh, at Sundance. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it, Renee Russo, some other people, John Malkovich. Is it any good? Because a lot of times art movies just don't work. Yeah. So 
Hollywood has not been kind to the no. art world just in general. You think of uh, Delia from Beetlejuice, you know, sort of <laughs> mock that kind of character in film. Um, and this film is actually, it's like a, it's a very schlocky kind of horror type film. It's, yeah. uh, it's a, a lot of creepy. A lot of people get brutally killed in it, actually. <laughs> um, so it it's fun. Is it good? Mm, it feels, it's like a little schlocky, our critic said, James. Yeah. Um, but it has a sort of funny message about the art world, which is, you know, people who are greedy in this film and sort of take advantage of uh, this deceased artist and his artwork, um, they get punished right, by right. the art itself. As, as James puts in the story, and then things start to go wrong yes. after the art gets sold. That's when you know there's a turn. Um, last but not least, certainly, um, I'm thinking maybe going back to the bonus story, if it's your last bonus, you might want to buy a piece of jewelry that's just gonna like wow you <laughs> yeah so this uh the one this week is a pair of earrings we're coming up on valentine's day they're felt like unbelievable. a nice thing they're really beautiful and you know we spotted them glenn close actually wore these earrings they're called the Teresa earrings they're by uh anna curie and she wore them uh, on the red carpet at the golden globes right and they're these like swooping diamond strands that have a like a pendant sapphire that uh twinkles as it moves around uh and they're very cool and they're very sculptural well it looks like it kind of weaves through your ear right because yes. it's connected by one thing and then kind of loops around your ear yes exactly it's a it's sort of a swooping thread design how um, much are these they're eighty thousand dollars just eighty thousand only eighty is there any competition out there to something like this yeah oh there's t- <laughs> i mean obviously there's tons uh delfina delatrez is someone who's make, been making sort of like uh modern postmodern sculptural pieces that we liked hers um so yeah it's a it's a kind of the look now is this non-standard earrings shape that's Pursuits Editor Chris Rouser. And that wraps up this episode of Bloomberg Business Week's Weekend Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Can't catch us live? Get our podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. We have podcasts, of course, of our daily show, weekend show, and Business Week extras. You can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. You can also download the Bloomberg Business Week app. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.